Well, good morning. Good morning. Oh my gosh. Good morning. Let's. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. It is when God's people gather. It is a good day. Uh, welcome. My name is Randy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Bible Church, and I have the great privilege and responsibility of helping us begin our study through the book of Nahum over the next few weeks. Uh, so if you will open up your Bibles to Nahum, we'll jump right in. Uh, there are scripture journals in the back uh, if you haven't grabbed them as we've been going through uh, Jonah and Habakkuk over the last few months. So if you haven't grabbed one yet and you would like to use one of those, there's a pile of them, uh, feel free to take them uh, and make notes as we go through this over the next few weeks. But let's join and read Nahum 1, 1 through 8. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we are confronted with the weight of your awesome power, the weight of your justice on the people of Nineveh being poured out to destroy them for all of the wickedness and evil that they have promoted. Lord, we see you painted very specifically here in, in Nahum, Lord, and ask that uh, as we see you, as we come before you, that we would rightly understand the goodness and also the seriousness of your nature. Lord, you are the great, mighty, and powerful God, and we pray that you would work as only you can in our hearts and minds this morning to rightly understand you and to turn our hearts and affections to you in worship. Lord, we thank you that you have brought your people together, that you gather us as brothers and sisters to come before you, to open up your word, and to encounter you this morning. Lord, we thank you for that. Amen. The opening words of Nahum make many of us feel immediately uncomfortable. The Lord is a jealous and an avenging God. If you were asked Christians today how to describe God, I doubt these two words would be some of the first ones that they mentioned. 
Indeed, uh, they would rather say something like, God is love, God is kindness, God is mercy. Indeed, we have song after song after song that emphasize all of these beautiful and wonderful pieces of who God is that highlight these positive attributes. But many aren't comfortable today in the American church saying God is jealous and avenging. But indeed, as Nahum opens up, he forces us to look at this and to begin to reconcile who this great and mighty God is. When I was a youth pastor at a previous church, uh, we had a new family visit the church as is customary when people come. And I, I called this uh, parents, these parents and said, hey, I'm the youth pastor. My name's Randy. Uh, let me tell you about the youth group as you're trying to decide if you want to be a part of this church and have your son attend the youth group. Just standard things that you do. Uh, and so after we talked about, you know, how do you handle all these different hot topic issues, uh, you get into what does the teaching look like? What is the plan? Where are you guys going to go and cover as a youth group? What do you teach and preach on when the kids gather together? And at that time, it was just customary to simply switch between Old Testament and New Testament. That's all I did. Old Testament book, New Testament book. Old Testament book, New Testament book. And the mom said, hold on, so you preach frequently through the Old Testament. And I said, well, yeah, of course, it's God's word. And she said, well, we just aren't comfortable with our son learning the Old Testament. And I, I, you know, I'm like, okay, hold on. Uh, do you believe that the Old Testament is the word of God? Yes, of course we believe that. But we just want our son to encounter the God who saves and gives his life. We don't want him exposed to this Old Testament God who pours out wrath on the nations. We want the God who forgives and dies for us but not the God who rules in judgment over nations. And it's shocking for us to hear stories like this, but if we're honest, it's fairly common in broad American Christianity. We want the God who does everything for us that makes our life beautiful. We don't want to come face to face with the God who is jealous, wrathful, and avenging. But Nahum is going to bring us right into that picture this morning right into looking at the God who is jealous and avenging, the very beginning of his book. The irony is, as people struggle with identifying God in these ways, they say, well, God, God's supposed to be a, a great mercy and a comfort to me. God's supposed to help me when I'm down and struggling in life. They misunderstand what these attributes say about God. And indeed, the book of Nahum is a book of comfort. The name Nahum literally means comfort. The entire book, as we read it, even though it's full of God's judgment on Nineveh, is meant to be read and understood through the lens of this is a comfort to God's people. This should serve to cause their hearts to rejoice in who God is. At every point as we read this book over the next four weeks, as we preach through it, we should be asking this question. How is this a comfort for the people of God? And so we go back to these opening lines of Nahum's book again. If you have your Bibles opened up in front of you, you can look at these opening lines. And one of the things that I find helpful uh, when we look at specific expressions of God is to begin to highlight or circle attributes or things that the author is saying about God. And so let's read these first uh, few verses. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. 
The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Jealous, avenging, taking vengeance, keeping wrath, slow to anger, great in power. And so we ask, how is this a comfort to God's people? We have to understand the setting that all of this is taking place in. Nahum writes somewhere between the years 664 and 612 B.C., And we know these are the brackets that Nahum has to be placed in because in chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, he references uh, the fall of the ancient city of Thebes, which we know historically happened in 664. Uh, And the whole book is a prophecy about the fall of Nineveh, which means it has to happen after this book is written, which happens historically in 612 B.C. The best guess by many scholars is that the actual date of this book is somewhere between 650 and 630 B.C., uh, because Nahum will write in next week as we get there in verse 12 of chapter 1 that Nineveh is at full strength. This means that this, uh, the most, one of the most powerful kings, Ashurbanipal, must still be in power because after he uh, steps down from the throne, after he dies, Nineveh is in obvious decline to the world around them. Nahum wouldn't be saying Nineveh is at full strength and many in verse 12 if this guy was not at least in power. So this means that historically speaking, most likely 650 to 630 BC is when Nahum is writing this prophecy about Nineveh. Why does this matter? Well, it helps us to understand the people of God during this time period. After the city of Nineveh was spared, if we step back a century during the time of Jonah, which we preached through Jonah uh, a month and a half ago, uh, the city grew stronger and stronger. The Assyrian Empire grew in power and had even ended up wiping out the entire northern kingdom of Israel, uh, and their capital had been moved to Nineveh as they grew in power. In the south, Israel is the country to the north, Judah is the country to the south, after they split in two. Uh, In the south, King Hezekiah is uh, reigning at the beginning of this century, but he passes away in 687 B.C. King Hezekiah is a good king. He said that he walks in the steps of his father David. He he sought to follow uh, God and do what was right in the eyes of God, and he does great things through the time of Hezekiah. But when he passes away, his son Manasseh takes the throne. Manasseh takes the throne in 687 BC and is evil and wicked, unlike any king that they've had up until this time. He leads the people of Judah into total and complete apostasy. His reign would last all the way until 642 BC. And so it's during the end of the reign of Hezekiah and into the beginning of this time of Manasseh that Nineveh is going to reach its peak power and influence in the world. The northern kingdom is totally wiped out. The southern kingdom has become weak and idolatrous, and yet Assyrian Empire, highlighted by its capital city, Nineveh, grows strong. One scholar, Kenneth Barker, writes about the state of the Assyrian Empire during this time. The glory of Nineveh came, however, around 700 BC, when Sennacherib built a new palace and made Nineveh the capital of Assyria, replacing Assur. He built magnificent public gardens. He built an extensive 30-mile-long aqueduct and water system. Eshharon and Ashurbanipal. Those are really hard words to say. (laughs) Man, makes my my Hebrew bad. Uh, They continued in this building program, so they're the kings that follow him in Assyria. 
a major feature being a massive library that has yielded thousands of tablets for archaeologists and historians to study. By the time that Manasseh is reigning in Judah, Assyrian dominance over Judah seemed to be institutionalized. What does this mean? It means the center for world power, education, religious worship, and influence in the world at that time is Nineveh. King Manasseh of Judah, in turn, institutionalizes worship of Baal, one of the chief gods of the people of Nineveh, into the culture of Judah as he promotes wickedness. And so in the midst of all of this wickedness perpetuated by this man, Manasseh, God goes silent. God doesn't speak at all at the beginning of Manasseh's reign. And this is a form of judgment on God's people. And in fact, this is a silence that's probably broken by Nahum. He's the first one that's going to come and speak after God has gone silent, after the people of Judah have apostatized and brought in all kinds of evil worship into uh, the land of Judah, into the temples, and set up shrines all over the countryside. God no longer talks to his people, but Nahum comes with a message of comfort. How bad is the wickedness at this time? Well, when Manasseh's grandson Josiah takes the throne in 640 BC, which is right in the middle of this probable time that Nahum is writing, uh, after the very short reign of of, uh, the son of Manasseh, uh, he reigns for 18 years until we find this major discovery. And so when Josiah has been king for 18 years, so if you're doing the math, this is roughly 622 BC-ish, he finds something. He sends his people to go collect the money from the temple, and as they're cleaning out the temple, looking for all the money that they can come up with, they find the book of the law. For decades and decades and decades, the people of God have forgotten that God's law, his book, his words to the people has even existed. When they bring it to King Josiah and they read it, he weeps, he tears his clothes, he cries out for forgiveness from God, he commands that the law be read in front of all of the people, and there's a massive turn uh, to God in the people of Judah. But in 2 Kings 23, 4-8, he's going to describe just how bad the infiltration of this worship of Baal and Asherah have become in Judah. And this is important because this sets the stage for the land of Judah, most likely in the time of Nahum. 2 Kings 23, verse 4. The king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all of the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He, de- he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make, sa- uh, to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the host of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and he uh, to the brook Kidron, and he burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the city of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. 
He broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. So what is the picture that we have of the people of God as Nahum starts in chapter 1 saying God is a jealous and avenging God? Worship to foreign gods inside of the temple of God. Not just in the land. They have transformed the place that was dedicated to be the house of God into a place that has temple prostitutes to perform sexual acts in order to worship Baal and Asherah. Total apostasy of the people of Judah. All sorts of evil as they worship false foreign gods. A people in Judah who have neither heard from God nor read his word in decades. On a quick side note, before we continue on in Nahum, we should see stories like this as we work through Scripture as a great reminder as the people of God to have an absolute love and desire for his word. We should be people who protect ourselves from drifting into placing our faith in things other than God or placing our faith in false beliefs by reading God's word. Many Christians today readily leave, read and listen to all sorts of Christian-sounding things but struggle to read the word of God. And one of the things that will keep us as Christians from drifting into idolatrous worship, from following and placing our faith in either bad theology or total false gods, is a dedication to the word of God. We should be people fully committed to constantly engaging God's word so that when teachings that are contrary to scripture pop up, we can easily say, that's not in the Bible or that's directly against the Bible. We should be a people who can filter out bad teaching because of our love for God. This would have protected Judah. But nevertheless, back to Nahum. Nahum opens up his prophecy with the words, the Lord is jealous. And I believe he does this for a very specific reason. God will not put up with the glory that he is due being given to somebody else. These words are meant to pull directly from the Ten Commandments, the word of God in the law of God in the book of Exodus. Exodus 20, verse 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. So when Nahum writes here, he is saying to the people that are hearing this prophecy and to the people of Nineveh, God is jealous. He is not going to put up with false worship. He is not going to allow his name to be desecrated in the nations. God's jealousy in Scripture is always listed side by side with the worship of false gods. As Nineveh had flourished, the people of Judah and Israel assumed that the God of Nineveh must be the most powerful God, and they turned their hearts to worship him away from their God, God Most High, Yahweh. So Nahum opens his book of comfort with a reminder to the people of God and to the nations around that he is jealous 
for his own honor. He doesn't need the affection of people, but he will protect his name. And protect his name he will by displaying his power over the most powerful nation at the time, bringing judgment on the Ninevites and on their gods. He will avenge his name. He will display his power to his people. Nahum makes it clear in even these first few verses that the God of Judah, Yahweh, who's been silent, who many have ceased to worship, will display his power through his avenging work against evil and false worship produced and propagated by Nineveh. And so jealousy and vengeance, even in this verse 2, rightly understood, are not the negative attributes we often associate with them. And in fact, jealousy and vengeance are righteous, just, and necessary for God. He must defend and avenge violations of his honor. To give what belongs to God to somebody else is a sin against God. And those who do this, those who mock him, who belittle his name, will receive his judgment. That's what Nahum's getting at. And so he continues. Verse 3. This is some other attributes of God. What is he like? His way is in whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Why this language? Two reasons. First, it's displaying God's power. He is the one running across the clouds in the sky. Who alone can do that but God? He can cause rivers to turn into not to Arizona rivers, quite frankly, right? Uh, Carmel, Bashan, Lebanon, everything is withering before him. The mountains quaking, the hills melting away, the earth heaves displays of the awesome power of God. But there's more at play, I believe, here. This is also a refutation of Baal. Why does he choose this language? Well, Baal was the storm god and the bringer of rain in the gods, in the pantheon of the Ninevites. Baal was recognized as the one who was sustaining the fertility of crops, animals, and people. And so his followers of Baal often believe that sexual acts performed in the temple would boost Baal's power and thus contribute to his work in increasing fertility. In the Ugaritic Eptic material, Baal is pictured as descending into the netherworld, the domain of a god called Mot. This descent was evidently part of a cycle that was intended to coincide with the seasons. In order to bring Baal up from the, the realm of the dead, the people that worshipped Baal... Uh, in order to initiate the fertile season and the rain and the flourishing that they thought Baal would bring, would engage in worship that included human sacrifice as well as sexual rites, uh, so much so that sacred prostitutes were evidently participating in this yearly ritual, even in the temple of God. The influence and the prosperity of Nineveh in this time had the effect of causing many other nations to turn and worship the God of Nineveh. If Nineveh is the most powerful country, their God must be the most powerful God. They wanted to grow in power and to prosper like the Ninevites. 
The same could be said of Judah, as we already mentioned, under the reign of Manasseh. This God, Baal, the storm God, is the one they had put hope in. But Nahum writes, who's the one who really runs on the clouds? Who is the one who makes the clouds the dust of his feet, the one who controls all of creation? Nahum is saying simply, it's Yahweh. It's the God of Israel and the God of Judah. He's the one who controls the rain. He is the one who is awesome in power. He is the one who is in the storm clouds and controls all of the weather. The one who controls and commands all of creation, even Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon. Why are these places mentioned? They mean nothing to most of us in here. Right? The only reason that you know these names is because you've read your Bible. But Nahum mentions these three very specific places because they mean something to the people of this time. These three places had widespread renown for their landscape. Bashan was famous for its rich pasture lands. I just went to Tennessee. There's water everywhere, grass growing like from the middle of the street, right? If somebody from Arizona goes there, it's amazing, right? It's like there's no end of grass. This is Bashan. It's rich pasture lands. It seems like the grass never goes away. Carmel was a mountain known for its beauty and luxurious countryside. Lebanon was a world-famous forest whose lumber was sought after all over the world in order to build temples and palaces for kings. What Nahum is saying here when he mentions these three very specific places is that even in those areas that seem to have eternal flourishing, that they don't need the help of Baal to increase in their produce and their fertility, to have pasturelands full of grass and mountains full of blooming flowers and vegetation, big, strong, powerful forests that can endure anything. Nahum is saying, even in those places, the true God snaps his finger, they go away. He controls all of creation. The people had worshipped Baal and sought for his blessing to have crops, but only God most high controls even the areas they see need no help producing and sustaining their vegetation. In the New Testament, the author of Hebrew says it this way, Hebrews 1.3, talking about Jesus. He is the radiance of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. What does he do? And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. All of creation is fully dependent on God and God alone for life. So Nahum is turning to these people and saying, be comforted, O people of God. God most high, the God of Judah, is powerful. The earth melts before him, and he is your God. So while the world has trusted in false gods, their trust will prove to be fatal. Their comfort will be gone, their hope melting away like the hills before him, because God of Judah, Yahweh, is God alone. After describing God as the one who will protect his name, who upholds creation, we have this wonderful picture of God. Nahum asks this question in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? So this awesome picture that's been painted isn't the picture that we often see today. of God or Jesus tenderly holding a lamb. There's some rainbows in the background. Kids frolicking in the fields. Everybody's smiling. Everybody's really happy. There's a couple cute dogs. No cats, just dogs. Uh... Uh, running around, right? Everything's peaceful and happy. 
No, the picture that Nahum gives us as we open his word here in chapter 1 is a God who is about to destroy, an unstoppable God who even the most fertile of places will be seemingly turned into a drought before his power. It's a God who makes one buckle at the knees as they come face to face with his power and the weight of his wrath towards evil. We are tempted to read this with the wrong eyes and respond by trembling in fear. Like the forest of Lebanon, we wilt away as we look at this question, who can stand before him because we know the answer? No one. No one can stand before him. If he is the avenging God, the God who protects his own honor, the one who holds all power in his hands, the people must be looking around at all of these shrines that they've built across the countryside about the worship in God's temple to false foreign gods and be saying, I know this is about Nineveh. We might be in a little trouble here. We have not been worshiping this God. Who can stand his indignation? But again, Nahum is a book of comfort for God's people. This is all tied to verse 6 when he says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And that might seem like a bad thing. Well, if he can't clear, the, clear guilt, he's not going to wipe, wipe or forget it away. He's not going to forget any offense against him and let it go un, unpunished. The answer to the question in verse 6 is clear. No one can stand before him. But Nahum has also reminded us that God is slow to anger. God is powerful, but God is patient. His enemies are doomed. There's no way they can endure the heat of his anger. But he will finish this section by describing God as an overflowing flood that completely wipes out all of his enemies. But where God won't clear the guilty and he's slow to anger, sandwiched between these two devastating statements that no one can stand before him, he's going to send a flood to wipe out his enemies, we land in verse 7. A beautiful passage of comfort for God's people. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. God is an avenger. He's jealous. He stores up wrath, but he also provides hope to his people, even when they have set up other gods before him. He is coming to deliver, to deliver judgment on Nineveh and to rescue his people once again. All of this background, the opening of Nahum, should help us to be reminded of something great. This God, the great God, doesn't deliver the people of Judah from Nineveh because of their righteousness. He delivers the people because of his righteousness. He will do what he does. He will not be mocked. He will not allow other nations to worship false gods and promote evil in the lands forever. We have no reason to believe as we read the book of Nahum that the people of Israel have done anything to turn and to promote righteousness in the land. And yet God is going to save on his own accord and according to his own plan to demonstrate his power as the true and mighty God. A similar thing has already happened. If you go to the book of 1 Kings, you have the wonderful story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, of all places. What's he doing? He's contesting the prophets of Baal. They've set up a, a 
shrine. They're going to call on Baal. Baal's going to prove to be the god that's the greatest god. And Elijah, this one prophet, sits there, mocks him. It's a hilarious story. Read it. Uh, if, you have, if you think sarcasm isn't legitimate, just go read First Kings. Uh, and you'll see Elijah is very sarcastic towards these people. God will display his power to the people even if they have not turned to him. He will prove to be the true and mighty God. The gods of the pagans needed to find power through the worship of their followers. They had to engage in all of these things yearly so that Baal would be empowered to come out of the land of Mot, the land of death, and produce fertility in the land yet again. But the God of Israel, the one true God, needs nothing to save. He doesn't need to be empowered by the worship given to him by his people. He will save on his own accord and according to his own plan. The people don't deserve the comfort of this mighty God, but he's going to provide it anyway. So this morning, we don't tremble in fear at the jealous, avenging, wrathful God. We shout with praise because of who he is. Yes, he's mighty in power. Yes, he pours out wrath on his enemies. His ways shake the very earth. He won't let any violation against him go unpunished, but this same God also sent his son. And the awesome weight of God's power, the heat of his wrath and judgment is poured out on Jesus Christ for those who take refuge in him. And so the call for us is simple. Don't bow your knee to Baal. Shout to the Lord with praise, for he is good and he is our refuge. He is patient and he is powerful. Cling to the awesome truth this morning that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came and absorbed the full wrath of God's judgment, the wrath that swallows up nations and destroys the seemingly eternal forest of Lebanon, the God who destroys enemies and makes fools of false gods, also sent his son to die that his people might be saved while they were still sinners. Nahum is a book of comfort because God doesn't forget his promises and he will always protect his people. Although the people have abandoned him, he will continue to uphold his promise to Abraham, to David. He will move his purposes forward faithfully and demonstrate his power over the false gods of foreign nations and nations themselves. And we should be reminded as we finish this opening section this morning that there is no power in the world, whether a power of flesh or a power of spirit, that can prevent God from executing his plan and providing for his people. He will keep his name from being desecrated and he will protect his people. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And as we leave this morning, two quick questions to ask and examine yourself. One, where's your comfort? Where are you going in the midst of life to feel safe and protected? Are you going to God or are you going to other things? And number two, what can you do in your life to exalt the name of God among a nation that doesn't know or worship him? What are we doing as God's people to shout his name, God, most high, Yahweh is the true God. Turn people to worship him 
What can we do in our life to exalt the name of God amongst a nation that doesn't know or worship him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the weight of your awesome power. We thank you that you are the just God, that you will not be mocked, that every sin against you will be avenged by you and you alone. But Father, we also thank you that you have sent your son Jesus, that we might find refuge in you, that we might through Jesus be reconciled to you and have the hope of eternal life. Father, we pray for those that we know in our lives, maybe even in this room this morning, who aren't finding refuge in you, who don't belong to you. And Father, we pray that the weight of your awesome power would be calling these people to come and lay themselves at your feet to submit and say, you and you alone are God. Father, we pray that the work of Christ would be evident in our lives, that we would be a people who exalt your name, who make much of your awesomeness, of your power, of your glory, who call a nation out of worshiping and trusting in false things and instead call people to place their trust in you and you alone. Father, enable us to do this through your spirit. Enable us to be people who rightly see you and worship you for who you are. Amen.